I'm not feeling that way, by the way. I'm feeling good. Not ha not not unhappy. Not so sad. Let's just listen to this as we get started with the show. Welcome in. Thanks for joining us on Sunday Night Cable, everybody. I appreciate you being here live with me on Sunday night. It's good to be back. I've been watching football all afternoon. I'm excited. We're going to do a Super Bowl show here. I hope you'll join me for a Super Bowl pregame show. I can guarantee it's going to be more entertaining than what they're doing on uh, broadcast television. Join us on cable at twitch.tv slash TV for a special Super Bowl edition of Sunday Night Cable featuring uh, myself. We'll get my wife on camera, maybe. The last time she got a little camera shy, we'll see um, how she's feeling. We'll see if we can get my wife on stream. Uh... Also see if I can get a couple of my other buddies to join in, maybe even just on audio, maybe just a call in over Discord. Uh, looking forward to a good Super Bowl show. Welcome to Sunday Night Cable, 124-21. It's a new year, new president, had an inauguration this week, went off without a hitch. Lady Gaga was incredible, as always. Uh, everyone had a renewed urge to watch uh, A Star is Born Again. We had some friends recommend to us that apparently, uh, I think it's on HBO, somewhere, one of the streamers, I think it's one of the bonus streamers, it's not one of the streamers we we deal with here in the streaming top 10 featuring Hulu, Amazon, and Netflix, which we're going to get to later today. But on one of the other streamers, uh, you can watch the older versions of A Star is Born. Uh... There are three editions of A Star is Born. Honestly, I think the Bradley Cooper one is my favorite. I think that's my favorite edition of of that. But we had an inauguration this week. Gaga was great. That was, that was really the, the, the major takeaway for me. Went off without a hitch. Happy to see that. I've been watching football. I'm excited about the Super Bowl. There's something very pre-COVID to me about playoff football. You know, uh, it's not quite the same as being out at a bar with a bunch of your buddies or even being at a friend's house. Um, but I'm enjoying football season. The playoffs are fun. It's good to have playoff football back. I'm looking forward to the Super Bowl. We're going to have a small COVID get-together for the Super Bowl, just a few friends. Uh, but I'm looking forward to that. We're going to keep it under six people. So we're still in the clear on that front. But there's something pre-COVID about football, and I've been enjoying watching playoff football. Watched all afternoon today. Uh, I've got the game on here in the background on mute. I'll keep you posted if anything of note happens. What an incredible national anthem to kick off this Chiefs game with this kid who apparently is in the School of Rock. He's a School of Rock musician and is a traveling guitarist. I don't know exactly how that works, if he's just kind of busking with his guitar case open, or if there's more of a production involved. Is he just playing different school talent shows? Is he a talent show ringer? You bring in this kid from the Chiefs game just to win your talent show? He's just doing that dope electric guitar, Jimi Hendrix-y version. You know, it's interesting. It's not the Jimi Hendrix version. It's a different electric guitar national anthem. I don't think it's quite as good, honestly, as the Jimi Hendrix one, but that's a ridiculous standard. It's great. The kid's great. But how, how funny would it be if he's just showing up at talent shows, crushing it with this national anthem? He's got a rough name. It, I, I retweeted it, twitter.com slash jack on cable TV. You can find him that way. Uh, he goes by, by Tay, I guess, but... Um, but anyway, what what a performance from this kid. And it looks like we're going to get Patrick Mahomes versus Tom Brady, which I said to my wife is a great storyline, you know. That's the future versus the past. You have Patrick Mahomes, who's maybe the future of the position at quarterback, against Tom Brady, who is perhaps the greatest professional athlete of my lifetime. This is, you know, truly dicey waters and maybe sacrilege after everybody's really on a Jordan kick. 
I have affection for Michael. It's over this shoulder. I have great affection for Michael Jordan. I don't have posters of Tom Brady on my wall. But winning the NFC Championship this year in 2021 marks 20 years of winning conference championships. I pulled up some of the stats. He's 43 years old. Over the course of his career with the Patriots, uh, after taking over for Drew Bledsoe, who came to the Cowboys and preceded the great Tony Romo, who I have more thoughts on. 43 years old. Drew, uh, Drew Bledsoe gets injured for the Patriots in the, in the 2000 year. In the playoffs and the Super Bowl of the year 2000, Tom Brady leads the Patriots to the Super Bowl, starts the dynasty that would then go on to achieve 17 AFC East titles. They played in 13 AFC East championship games from 2001 to 2018, including eight in a row from 2011 to 2018. They won nine of them. It's unbelievable. Six Super Bowls. He's potentially the greatest professional athlete of my lifetime. This is 20 years of dominance at one of the most difficult sports in one of the most difficult positions. I'm not here to kind of litigate basketball versus football versus golf or whatever. I'm just here to say that it's incredibly competitive to play in the NFL. At least so, if not the most so, at the quarterback position. So it's truly incredible to see Tom Brady go 20 years at the top of the position. This is an incredible story. We're all witnessing history. If your kids grow up and become fans of football, whatever it looks like at that point in time, they're going to want to know about Tom Brady. This is a historic year. You know, there's a meme going around that has pictures of LeBron and Tom Brady in their Bucks and Lakers uniforms, respectively, talking about how people had claimed they were just doing it against a weaker division, and now they've gone to this other place and are doing it there. And I don't know that this is necessarily a proof that Tom Brady could have just done it in either, either division, but it is extra impressive regardless of whether or not they're bringing in ringers that wouldn't have gone to those teams otherwise. For LeBron and Tom Brady to go to new organizations with new coaching staffs and new personnel and create success again. Bruce Arians was incredibly gracious after the, after the Super Bowl game. It was amazing. I was talking with Bailey. I was talking with my wife. We're watching the team, and they, they love Brady. They fucking love that guy. He's a leader. He's a hero. He's charismatic. He's won that locker room. Graciously, Brady insisted they bring somebody else out, up. They put somebody else on the mic. And Bruce Arians credited single-handedly Tom Brady with changing the organization. Said it took one man. It's incredible praise. And a stark contrast from what we saw with Bill Belichick. Welcome to the stream. Good good to have you here, Dr. Comics. Thanks for everybody else that's tuning in. Live at twitch.tv slash jackoncabletv. It's Sunday Night Cable. We're talking TV. We're talking movies. This week, I'm going to give a review of One Night in Miami. Talk about Spike Lee's epic, Malcolm X. Go through the new streaming top 10. And also plug a special bonus segment we're going to do later this week talking about reading the David Foster Wallace classic, Infinite Jest. So Brady wins the AFC Championship game. 20 years of winning AFC Championship games after building a new dynasty at the Bucks organization. Bruce Arians is a great head coach. He's got great personnel around him. No doubt about it playing with some really talented players on both sides of the ball. Controversial or not, Ndamukong Sue is a beast. Mike Evans, now a veteran. 
just incredible play on both sides of the ball around Tom Brady. And Tom Brady was quick to call it a team effort. He's a leader. But Tom Brady, the greatest quarterback of all time, potentially the greatest professional athlete of all time, is going to the Super Bowl. And as of about the half in this game, Patrick Mahomes, potentially the next greatest quarterback of all time, potentially the future of the position, looks like he's going to get there to face off against Tom Brady and go for repeat championship. Patrick Mahomes is an absolute phenomenon. He's the future of the position. He's able to play quarterback in a way that is totally unique. But at the same time, we saw in that NFC Championship game between Super Bowl winning former MVP Tom Brady and Super Bowl winning former MVP and current MVP Aaron Rodgers, how cerebral NFL football can be played. The Bucks packers game was an incredible matchup. I wish that we would have had Tony Romo able to walk us through that game with competency. But we had Troy Aikman. Did Troy Aikman have COVID? I want to pull something up on the screen here. This is a, sc- this is a screenshot that I retweeted. Twitter.com slash Jack on Cable TV. And at Troy Aikman's desk is a box of tissues, a bag of Hall's cough drops, and what appears to be a cup of tea. Now listen, I'm not here to tattle on anybody, and I'm not even really that that much of a gatekeeper about what Troy Aikman's co-workers feel comfortable with him doing. I'll tell you this, with what I hear about the reliability of these COVID tests, if I'm Joe Buck, I don't know that I want to be in that booth. You know, you got one vaccine shot already. Do you want to lock up in the booth with sneezy Troy Aikman for four hours? I don't know. I don't know. It wouldn't be me. So Troy Aikman, seemingly with a cold, uh, is calling this football game. Now, sincerely, I don't care. I don't care. But what I what I was saying to my wife as we were watching this game, as far as the whole COVID thing goes, is like, you could really have a Super Bowl ruined by COVID. That's not out of the realm of possibility for a team to have a COVID outbreak. And if you've got five, six key guys from a from a team test positive for COVID, that really changes the game. You could have the Super Bowl ruined because Troy Aikman decided to call the football game with a cold. If Troy Aikman ruins the Super Bowl, I'm not going to forgive him. I'm going to be angry. I mean, I don't know. You tell me. It's got a box of tissues, the cough drops, the tea. It looks like he's sick. But anyway, if if Troy Aikman wasn't calling the game, if Tony Romo was calling the game, I think it would have been a lot more insightful. Maybe the Super Bowl winning quarterback wouldn't be knocked out of the game with a COVID positive test. But it was a fantastic game. And in the second quarter of the game, things almost shed. <laughs> Dr. Comics says this is an open and shut case. I think it is. In the second quarter of the game, the game almost swung. In the second quarter of the game, on the last possession, Tom Brady scored an incredible touchdown pass. They go ahead 21-10 into the half. Coming out of the halftime, beginning of the third quarter, difficult turnover, interception. Immediately, Tom Brady turns it into points. There's an 18-point lead. The Green Bay Packers would, for the rest of the second half, be penalized 
by that 18-point lead. They score a decisive touchdown. Fantastic. But still in that third quarter, they need to score again, and this time they decide to go for the two-point conversion. A decision that maybe they didn't have to make at that point in time, but I agreed with. We talked it over in the living room. Five points behind, at this point in the game, is the worst spot to be. Because in a certain way, seven points is no good. You know, the difference between six and seven, maybe it's negligible. Aaron Rodgers throws a dart. It's a strike. Bounces off the wide receiver's hands. They don't complete the two-point conversion attempt. Later in the game, they're facing a first and goal from the nine-yard line. It's a long attempt. They decide to kick the field goal because even if they're able to score on that possession, they've still got to make a difficult two-point conversion because of that earlier missed two-point conversion. I'm not saying it was the strategic misstep. What I'm saying is that Tom Brady is special. Tom Brady seizes on moments that other players and other quarterbacks are not able to do. And it's easy to say, hey, man, it was a little bit of a fluke that they scored at the end of the half. Hey, man, that was a little bit of a fluke interception. Hey, man, it's a little bit of a fluke that he bounced off uh, the receiver's hands for that two-point conversion. And yeah, it is, it is, it is, it is. But this is 20 years. It's 20 years of Tom Brady manifesting that kind of a break for himself over and over again. And that's what makes him probably the greatest professional athlete of our lifetime. It's incredible what we're getting to see. Everyone's been looking back at the greatness of Michael Jordan, and we're watching football's Michael Jordan right now. There's a great line, I have it for this Super Bowl. I have nostalgia for things that haven't even happened yet. I think we're going to get Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs in Tampa Bay against Tom Brady and the Bucks. And I'm so excited. I hope you guys are going to join me for the Super Bowl. It's going to be a great matchup. We're witnessing greatness with Tom Brady. I'm glad you're here with me on the journey. Last week, we had a great streaming top 10. I'm proud of the top 10s that we've been, put, we, we've been putting out. We're putting out some incredible content. If you're bored and you're looking for things to watch, go to our streaming top 10s because we've been putting up winners after winners after winners. I, I, I mean, Bridgerton, that's a classic. That's the best show you're going to watch this spring. Watch Bridgerton. Lupin? Lupin? This is a killer show. I'm giving out killer recommendations. I talked about Peep Show. There's nine seasons. The Americans. There's tons of content. I've given you guys some really incredible stuff, and I'm going to keep delivering week after week. I think we get right into it. This is this week's streaming top ten presented by Hulu. Netflix is streaming top ten presented by Hulu live on Amazon's Twitch here on Sunday Night Cable. I hope you guys are excited. I'm stoked. We got some real bangers this week to talk briefly about last week before I think I'm going to do the uh, the one night in Miami review at the end. But there, there were really a couple of hits from last week that I, I'm pretty proud of to this day. And I think that we've had some good ones, you know, in, in the past weeks as well. You know, I'm still really proud of Broken Arrow, Indecent Proposal. Last week we had Basic Instinct. Seven Psychopaths, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoke and Barrels. I think these are some real, some real killers. I wanted to bring up a couple of notes. The first is related to Blade Runner, The Final Cut. You'll note that in, in Blade Runner, The Final Cut, there's, there's no voiceover. If you haven't seen it with the voiceover, or even if you don't recall it, you can look up on YouTube and find clips where they just run through the different voiceovers. That's worth your time if you spent the time invested in in watching Blade Runner. I would also heart, heartily recommend watching uh, myself, Dr. Comics, and our pal Dave talk about Blade Runner, Blade Runner 2049. We did it on my channel. I'm still editing up an edit for uh, for Evan's YouTube. 
but we'll get that out to you. Make sure you watch Blade Runner 2049. I think it's fantastic. So, if you saw Blade Runner last week, go ahead, do yourself a favor, see those voiceovers, think about how that changes the movie for you. Um, like I said, we're going to talk about One Night in Miami, but I think at the end, I want to get into this week's streaming top 10. And I really looked, but I could not find a, a great erotic thriller that either I hadn't seen or I wanted to get behind. And we've had a couple of really good erotic thrillers on the last couple, Basic Instinct, Indecent Proposal. If you're out there in TV land, uh, go ahead and, and send us via Twitter, Instagram, even here on Twitch, some suggestions for the erotic thriller category because that's been a fun one. It's rainy, it's winter, it's cold. There's something fitting about that genre for the season. So uh, I'll be watching that. The Little Things, day one on HBO. Man, that's a great point that Evan's bringing up before we get into this streaming top ten. Do we add HBO? Does HBO get added into the mix? Is HBO a must-have streaming service for the people at home? First of all, it's expensive. It is superfluous. You know, the reasoning behind the streaming top 10 providers, Amazon, Hulu, and Netflix, is that everybody in the world has access to Hulu, has access to Netflix. Even if you don't have the subscription coming off of your credit card, you've got somebody in your life that will give you a login. So you've got access to Netflix. Hulu's literally free. You got to watch the ads, but it's literally free. And then Amazon pays for itself, if not from, you know, uh, just the, the shipping and all the different savings. It pays for itself in the grocery savings, at least for us. Some of our viewers want to add stars. Boy, we're really starting to extend. I'll tell you what, I want to give bonus picks every week. So I'm happy to add picks from stars. But I think HBO really deserves a conversation. Body Doubles, a, uh, a, a uh, an erotic thriller that we're putting on the bonus list from this week. That was uh, sent in by Dr. Comics Live at twitch.tv slash jack on cable TV. Where's that streaming? Where's Body Double streaming? Is that on uh, one of the streamers? We'll see what he says uh, as he chimes in. But I think with HBO, there's a real case to be made that this is going to be something that everybody has. And it is 15 bucks a month, but it's less than the price of a single movie. And you're getting a new movie every month all year long. Do you want to have HBO Max in perpetuity forever and ever? I don't know. You probably want to have it when Curb Your Enthusiasm is making new seasons. And I think you probably want to have it when stuff like The Little Things is coming straight to HBO. You know, Dr. Comics brings up a good point. Why would you not want to watch Jared Leto and Denzel Washington in a serial killer thriller free in your living room? I'm going to be watching The Little Things day one. As soon as it's available to stream in the house, I'm going to be streaming it. You know, I'll be talking about these movies. I'll be showing them. I think they're going to end up in the top 10. I think I think HBO is going to become a must-use service, which is so interesting. Because I think we are approaching whatever the equivalent of cord cutting is for the streamers. You know, Evan's buying Body Double on Vudu. He's not also going to continue to do HBO, Stars, Prime, Cinemax, etc., etc., on in perpetuity. At some point, some of these services are going to have to get cut. I think Prime, Netflix, and Hulu always stay. So we'll always keep those. But I think there's a real argument to be made for adding HBO. And so we'll be coming back on that. But let's get into this week's streaming top 10, presented by Netflix, live on Hulu, at Amazon's Twitch. I messed that up, but you know what I'm talking about. It's the streaming top 10. It's Sunday Night Cable. At number 10, Clint Eastwood's debut, Hang 'em High, is streaming on Hulu. I was thinking about Clint Eastwood, and... I'm just on the edge of the generation, I think, that he was a big deal for. I don't know what he is to these new generations. But I still see him, you know, obviously, influencing not only characters in film and portrayals in film, but contemporary notions of masculinity. I think in America and beyond. And so it's interesting to see 
the first time that Clint Eastwood starts to develop this very specific form of American masculinity. And although, of course, he becomes famous for, you know, modern thrillers like, you know, he's playing Dirty Harry in San Francisco, right? You know, he's not always this Western archetype. But I think that it makes sense that the person that would become the creator, the emblem of this very distinct kind of American masculinity would make his debut in a Western. I spent some time over in the Middle East for work, and although it's a joke, it is true that it's a bit of a meme that Americans are all cowboys. You know, I go over there, I'm from Texas, I got cowboy boots on, the hat, the whole deal. I'm not helping the situation. I mean, you know? But there's something fitting about Clint Eastwood making his debut in a Western. So Hang'em High is on Hulu. It's worth your time, especially if you haven't seen it or haven't seen it in a while. At number nine is a movie that I have never given the due credit. MacGruber. MacGruber is a SNL movie. I don't know if it's the last SNL movie, but it's one of the later SNL movies, one of the more recent ones. At least one of the more recent ones not starring Andy Samberg. It's from that comedy trio, but it stars Will Forte as a MacGyver spoof character and I think I've seen bits and pieces of this movie but honestly I've never given I've never given MacGruber a, a fair shot we got people in the chat saying that they love this movie and I think that that's the reputation I think that there is a huge population of people that think that MacGruber is one of the funniest movies that's come out in the last 15 years I never really gave it a shot, but I am searching for decent comedy movies. There's something truly perverse and, for me, infuriating about how on Netflix, when you're searching comedy, they're constantly showing you stand-up specials and other kinds of sort of esoteric garbage that I suppose is at least comedic in its intent. But it's not for me, dog in the words of the iconic Randy, whatever his name is. It's on cable, you know? So I'm going to give MacGruber a shot. I'm watching MacGruber this week. I haven't seen it, but like I said, we got people in the chat saying they love it. It's from the guys that make all the Lonely Island movies, Andy Samberg, Yorma Tacone, the other one that stars in that hilarious Bash Brothers thing on Netflix. Will Forte is a MacGyver type, MacGruber. And also, you know, again, MacGruber, MacGyver, they're parodying a certain kind of masculine identity, a certain kind of American masculine identity that I do think is connected to Clint Eastwood and Hang 'em High. Speaking of frail or impacted American male masculinities, at number eight, Eyes Wide Shut, Stanley Kubrick's hard-to-watch-with-your-partner classic, Eyes wide shut. One of the things that I truly enjoy about film, television, books is a truly perfect scene. Just something that is totally real and lived in and electric. And it's sort of transcending even the real detail of the moment, the sense details in the moment, from the metaphor that is being drawn out of this really true-to-life experience. At the beginning of Training Day, Ethan Hawke meets Denzel Washington at the cafe. It's a bit of an odd meeting. They get into Denzel Washington's car, which is a Cutlass Supreme, and Dr. Dre comes on, and it's this filmic moment 
that just sort of lets you know that this is going to be a different kind of experience. And you're feeling it with Ethan Hawke's character. The scene in which Nicole Kidman relays the fantasy that she has when they are on that vacation is the best kind of filmmaking. It's so visceral. You know, this is a confusing movie. Maybe it's not a perfect movie. We got people that love these movies because they're incredible. And I think that one of the things that makes something like Eyes Wide Shut incredible, even if it's not perfect moment to moment, it may not be perfect in every moment. Every scene may not be a complete success for you. But there are moments in that film. And for me, there's actually quite a few of them. They're truly beautiful moments of filmmaking. It's an incredible movie. Of course, the behind-the-scenes story and chatter on that film is at least as fascinating as what we saw on the screen. So number eight, Eyes Wide Shut, is available for you to stream this week for free on Hulu. This week, there's been a lot of talk about corrupt politicians and things like that. And I'm Irish, and so obviously I love them in a certain kind of way. But I thought I'd shine a little light on one of the most corrupt families to ever be involved in American politics. And on the thing that they got away with, and kind of like sort of just brushed past to moralize to the rest of us for the rest of our lives... Chappaquiddick is available to stream on Netflix. For my generation, this isn't something we knew. Ted, Ted Kennedy was just a senator by the time I kind of came online. There's a crude joke to be made about how with Ted, the skeletons aren't in his closet. They're at the bottom of, well, you know. Chappaquiddick's available to stream on on Netflix, and I think it's a worthy uh, a worthy watch, especially if you weren't alive for Chappaquiddick. I don't agree with this rule because I think it's all fair game. But there are those who say, you know, oh this that the other, say what you will. This is okay to joke about. That's not. Show me the bodies, whatever. Well, with Chappaquiddick, there is a body. There is a woman who lost her life. I'll let you watch the story. But Chappaquiddick, worth your watch. Uh, I think it's a pretty good Ted Kennedy performance. Um, I like all the Kennedys on film. You know, I don't care who's doing it. But uh, but get, but but do do your Kennedy impersonation on film. We're got we got to get a good Bobby film at some point. I know that there was Bobby. Uh, it was a little um, experimental in a way that was unsuccessful and probably was not as compelling. Honestly, we want an epic like Malcolm X about the life of Bobby Kennedy, probably. Or maybe we don't. I don't know. Number seven, Chappaquiddick on Netflix. Number six, A Place in the Sun on Amazon. Number five, something a little lighter, The Spy Who Shagged Me. Number four, I think we mentioned the Russell Crowe tweets last week, but Master and Commander, an epic, beautiful score, beautiful shots. I was talking about uh, Lupin getting to see Paris, the, the beautiful shots of Paris. When you're not traveling, it's nice to travel via your cinema, which I got from Bridgerton, which you're not going to get from Good Burger, spoiler, but you're going to get from Master and Commander. I've always been a fan of, of the sea. There's something manifest destiny. There's something open. Moby Dick. The Encantadas. And so uh, Master and Commander's got a little bit of that lure for me. And I'm kind of a crazy Darwin fan too. So, you know, anything connected to the origin of the species gets gets me going a little bit nutty, you know. Number four, the Master and Commander's available on Humazoon, on Amazon. And number three... A Dallas classic, Bonnie and Clyde. I don't know if you could call them West Dallas heroes, but they're West Dallas legends. We're talking one night in Miami here soon. 
We're talking failures in the system, potentially. West Dallas has been poor since Bonnie and Clyde. There's a problem there that goes deep. I guess is all I'll say about that. But Bonnie and Clyde's a classic. Warren Beatty, Faye Dunaway. Talking about, you know, depictions of masculinity, Clyde Barrow and Warren Beatty's Clyde Barrow is a really interesting depiction of masculinity. Dr. Comics is in the chat saying, In the Heart of the Sea. That's an interesting, uh, that's an interesting uh, uh, movie. I saw In the Heart of the Sea. In the Heart of the Sea is about the book on which Moby Dick is based on. I've talked before about the great Robert Madison, who I'm going to be speaking about again today. Robert Madison wrote an unpublished book of poems called Tuckahoe about Frederick Douglass. But Robert Madison, one of the great Moby Dick scholars part of the Melville Society. Uh, Bob Madison from the University of Arkansas uh, taught, taught me Melville and Moby Dick. And Moby Dick is based on a true story. And In the Heart of the Sea is a fictionalization of the writing of the story that Moby Dick is based on, I believe. Starring Chris Hemsworth, I think. Give you that taste of the open air, man. A Nantucket sleigh ride. I feel like I messed that up when I said it out loud, but maybe not. Number three, The Handmaiden. You know, everybody was crazy for Parasite, and Parasite is incredible. But my actual favorite South Korean filmmaker movie that maybe Americans aren't familiar with although Bong Joon-ho is incredible. But it's Park Chan-wook, and his movie The Handmaiden is available on Amazon. It's an incredible, actually an erotic thriller. We've always got one on the list. The Handmaiden's this incredible story about a girl who goes to live with a wealthy family as their handmaiden. And uh, as you might have guessed from the it being called an erotic thriller... There's some sexiness, there's some thrills, there's some twists and turns. The Handmaiden is one of the greatest movies they've made this century. It's available for free on Amazon. So watch The Handmaiden this week. And number one, our number one movie available on Netflix, it's Good Burger starring Keenan and Kel. I wanted to put Good Burger and Keenan and Kel on this list because I thought it was a good segue into my review of One Night in Miami. One Night in Miami ends, spoiler alert, with a really powerful montage in which Muhammad Ali converts to the Nation of Islam, changes his name from Cassius Clay to Muhammad Ali, Sam Cooks, a change is going to come, plays over the montage. We see Malcolm X suffering from his split with Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam. It's a great documentary on Netflix about who really killed Malcolm X. Some suspect that the Nation of Islam killed Malcolm X. There were threats from the Nation of Islam. So anyway, uh, Malcolm X's house was burned. And we see Malcolm sitting in a hotel room with the autobiography of Malcolm X on his desk. Jim Brown retires from the NFL. And Sam Cooke's A Change is going to come plays. And the thing that is so poignant about One Night in Miami is that in some ways... The change that Malcolm X was so desperate for, that he thought perhaps Sam Cooke wasn't doing enough to bring about, in some ways we're still desperate for that change to come. In some ways, 
We are still waiting to realize Malcolm X's dreams. Malcolm X has a famous quote in which he says, and I'm paraphrasing, that you cannot separate justice from peace because no man, uh, or you cannot separate peace from freedom because no man can be free unless he is at peace. It's a quote that we saw this summer. So in some ways, Malcolm X is right. There is still so much that needs to change for his people to have peace, for his people to experience justice, for his people to have freedom. And One Night in Miami is a great movie because it's a reminder of all those things. And I was thinking about One Night in Miami because it really is a bit of a philosophical dialogue. And in some way, movies need to be judged on their own merits. Because The Spy Who Shagged Me is after something completely different from Master and Commander. And so there's some moments in Master and Commander where you're just sort of supposed to be looking at something beautiful, listening to something beautiful, as things slowly wash over you which is not the case with any moment in The Spy Who Shagged Me. In a similar tone, The Spy Who Shagged Me relies on farce and hyperbole, surprise, parody, irony, in a way that Master and Commander doesn't. And so One Night in Miami is an interesting movie because really it's a, it's a play turned into a movie. And even as a play, it's a philosophical dialogue. It's a dramatic exploration of ideas. And so, so to me, the, the thing that One Night in Miami is judged against is a history book, a nonfiction work of history, or a multi-part podcast. And what better way do you want to hear the story and the ideas of these people? And the reason that One Night in Miami is brilliant is that Jim Brown's been, been famous our whole lives. I'd guess that most of you know Malcolm X. That you know Muhammad Ali. That you know their politics. You probably know Sam Cooke's songs. Maybe you know his politics less. Which is something that Malcolm discusses in the film. But you might not have known all of the details of Jim Brown. Unless you're a big football fan. you got older brothers. Your dad. And so how do you want to explore these stories and these contests of ideas? And I think One Night in Miami is great as a philosophical dialogue. I think it's a great way to explore those ideas. I said last week, if you haven't seen Spike Lee's epic Malcolm X, don't watch it until you've seen One Night in Miami. One Night in Miami, I think, supposes a little bit of a knowledge that you might have, but perhaps Spike Lee's Malcolm X gives you more deeply. And I wanted to talk again about the positive side of One Night in Miami because there is something that is completely different about that movie and that ending then I think the first takeaway, which is a valid takeaway, and one that I have, that this movie is about things that we still need, that here we are, two, three generations later, decades later. Still battling. But in a different way, this movie shows us how much change has come. And I'm the unique beneficiary of that change. Good Burger is the number one movie on my list this week because I grew up loving Keenan and Kel. Keenan and Kel were black celebrities. I grew up loving the Wayans Brothers. On HBO right now, I just watched all the Wayans Brothers show, and that was hilarious to me. I grew up with the privilege of not having to think about race and being surrounded by people of color. The privilege of not having to think about it, by the way, was mine, not the people of colors in my life. But I grew up 
in Orlando, Florida. And Orlando's unique. Orlando's really a melting pot, more so than other places. Because in Orlando, especially when I grew up, the late 80s and the 90s, post-Disney, right? It's people from everywhere else. It's people from Michigan. It's people from San Antonio. People from Buffalo, New York. They all move to Orlando. And they come and they bring their stuff with them, you know. They're from Buffalo and they're making pierogies. They're from Brazil. And they're doing, you know, uh, steaks and stuff. Uh, I was trying to remember the, the different names for the churrascuro cuts or whatever. But I couldn't think of them. They're bringing all different types of stuff. You know, in Florida, I always talk about all the different types of Latin food we have. Because in Orlando, there's Colombians and there's Venezuelans. There's Cubans. You know, a lot's been made in the last couple of months about the difference between Cubans and other types of Latinos. And there is a difference between the experience that a certain class of Cubans in Florida have and a certain class of, say, Mexicans in Texas have. You know, I grew up with a, a guy who was related to uh, a, a fellow who was a senator, Senator Mel Martinez, was in Pres President Josh George Bush's cabinet. And guess what? If you end up in a cabinet with one of the Bushes, that's a different kind of political, social strata than what's accessible to some other groups. And so, yeah, there's some differences there. We saw that played out, explored, talked about a bunch. But there's really all different types of people. And so the reason I bring up this thing about Latinos in Florida is that some of these kinds of like race catch-alls that you might have seen other places were just sort of borne out right there, not to be true. You know, we didn't just have a Korean family. We had Korean families and Filipino families, Japanese families. We had literally people from everywhere. And in Orlando... We many times had people that were first-generation Americans, people whose parents were from Lebanon, had immigrated from India, from South America, from anywhere, all over the world. And so it really was a little bit more of a melting pot. And because I'm white, I had the privilege of not thinking about race. Granted, I didn't grow up with a ton of black people, but I grew up with people of all different types and I didn't think about it too much. As a little kid, Abraham Lincoln was always a hero to me. And there was something I, I think that, that, that sunk in deep. That Abraham Lincoln died. And he died because he freed the slaves. And obviously there's a couple of steps there. But at an early age, Abraham Lincoln was a hero. Because the institution of slavery was so unjust that it was worthy of dying for, even for the President of the United States. Slavery was such a horrible injustice that even for the President, it was worth dying for. And it was heroic and valorous that Abraham Lincoln was assassinated by somebody that hated him for the Confederate War. I don't know, it's stuck somewhere. By the time I got to sixth grade, Frederick Douglass became a hero to me. I mentioned the great professor Robert Madison wrote a book of poems that he graciously shared with me called Tuckahoe, about Tuckahoe, Maryland, where Frederick Douglass grew up. I was joking with a buddy of mine this week. I turned 35 yesterday, and... One of the things that you've got to do as an adult is you've got to make peace with not becoming Michael Jordan. At the end of the day, you're not Abraham Lincoln. You're not Elon Musk. You're not Conor McGregor. So now what? And we were laughing about how Malcolm X, with no opportunity with the entire world against a black man. Father killed, mother despondent. Look at what he had done by 35. And then me with, you know, all this. And that's just the way that it is.
but Frederick Douglass is incredible. There is something especially heroic about the lack of privilege. It was extra special for Frederick Douglass to read because they tried to keep him from reading. From the story of Frederick Douglass, I started to formulate a relationship with black struggle. And again, it comes from a place of privilege because I'm not a person of color. I didn't have to have a relationship with it. I was able to choose. That choosing is the privilege. But it was something that was very interesting to me. And it was something that was specially resonant. Resonant in a way that nobody can really understand. And one of the things that I don't know, but I suppose, I theorize, is that there's an epigenetic imprint on me that connects with the struggle of Malcolm X. Epigenetics is fascinating. It's relatively new. I don't understand it that deeply. But the essence of epigenetics is that the things that I experience right now are going to be represented in the DNA that I pass on. And in my descendants, the experiences that I've had, the way that I've taken care of my health, the traumas that I've endured, will inform their genetic code. There's studies about the relationship between grandparents that smoked and the grandchildren having asthma. Your DNA tells a story. Your DNA changes and adapts and is impacted by your environment. The Irish people are victims of colonialism for hundreds of years. Just recently, Brexit again threatened the sovereignty and the freedom of Irish people. I'm many, many generations removed from that struggle. I don't know that struggle. I don't know what it's like to have my language taken from me, to be refused the right to educate my children or pray to my God, to know that the police can brutalize me with impunity, to see the graves in my neighborhood of the people who were unjustly gunned down by soldiers. I didn't experience any of that. But somewhere in the DNA, it did. And I wonder if it left an imprint. If the rage that I have against colonialism is the result of some epigenetic imprint, some DNA memory of a struggle that connects with the struggle that I heard and saw in Malcolm X. But from Frederick Douglass, I deeper engaged in these notions of black identity, blackness in America. By the time I got to seventh grade, I read the autobiography of Malcolm X. And as a 12-year-old little white kid, all I wanted was to join the Nation of Islam and the Black Panthers to fight. Because I had been convinced that there was no separating freedom and peace. And that how could we possibly have freedom without peace? And that there was something denied. And it was different for Malcolm X than it was for Frederick Douglass, than it was for Colin Kaepernick. But I wanted to do whatever I could to join Malcolm X in his struggle for freedom. And I think there's a lot of missteps that Malcolm X made. And Spike Lee, I think, does a fantastic job in his retelling of the autobiography of Malcolm X, his movie, the autobi or Malcolm X, sometimes X. And Malcolm X is a complicated figure who was maybe not, you know, sometimes driven by ego, sometimes driven by anger, sometimes driven by fear. 
but he was a person that suffered great trauma, that loved deeply. And I think that in One Night in Miami, there's a good entry into the dialectic struggle that Malcolm X was engaged with. You know, how much standing by and feeling peaceful is acceptable, and how much do you need to be disruptive? You know, for Sam Cooke, if you really want this change to come, how much good times can you have in the moment? I've had probably one really significant relationship with a person of color. I had a unique upbringing for sure. Um, but one strange thing that happened is we went to this crazy mega church, and the mega churches operate a little bit like an AAU basketball team. You know, they've got a farm system, and they see a kid goofing around in the gym after practice shooting free throws, and they think, holy hell, we might be able to get a jump shot out of this kid. Well, at the mega church, they see somebody like me talking, ranting, spouting off ideas. And it's like an AAU basketball coach, you know. They see the prospect. They just got to mold it. And so, sure enough, you know, the megachurch gets a hold of me at, you know, 12 or so. And they start molding me up. And again, I'm a Malcolm X devotee, right? So I want to I talk. I want to get up on the pulpit, you know. But one of the things that happened at this church where we went to is that uh, the guy up the ladder, the guy who happened to be that AAU coach, was a black man. And he was a black guy that was married to a white woman. And so he was a mentor to me when I was a teenager. We spent hours and hours together, saw each other every week, talked on the telephone from probably... 13 to 18, I saw this guy every week. And it carried on into my early 20s, actually. Had a lot of close times together. You know, dealt with intimate moments. People's families uh, breaking up, challenging situations. You know, we were working with kids, and we had to deal with some weird things, you know. We never had anybody accuse anybody of anything. But there was a person once that everybody got a little bit of a weird vibe from. Had to figure out how to deal with that. And again, Orlando was a melting pot. And I was pretty privileged to not have to think about race. And so it's not accurate at all to say that my relationship with this black man was about him schooling me up on what it was like to be a person of color. That's not what it was at all. He was just a person that was in my life that was a person of color. And if you become intimate with families like that, then you know what it's like. He was also honest with me about what was unique and different about being a person of color in an interracial marriage. And although I talked about what a melting pot Orlando is and how privileged I was, that was not always his experience. And so from this person that I knew, you know, he would say, you're like a son to me. It was a very close, you know, father-son mentoring type relationship. I got some previews into the lived experience of somebody like Malcolm X. And he told me stories about things that people would say to him and to his daughters about him when he was out. I'll never forget when he told me about why he needed to be prepared to protect himself and his family. It was different. And so when you see Malcolm X full of fire and brimstone, when you see him pained to see people not, maybe, pained by the, the question, what do we do to end this for our people? What do we do to manifest this change?
I get it. I don't get it from the, the way that I've lived their experience, but I, I, I see and I hear them. And I think that we all have an obligation to listen, to listen. And I think that, you know, you probably didn't take the time. I didn't to listen to the story of the four people that are depicted in one night in Miami. And that's part of why representation matters. That's part of why it's important to have Regina King given the keys to the kingdom to create a movie that she wants to see on screen. To represent this philosophical dialectic between Malcolm X and Sam Cooke. To watch Cassius Clay think about this decision. It's important. I talked about the symbolic win for Chadwick Boseman and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And I can guarantee you, I haven't looked it up, I don't know what the news articles say, but I can guarantee you, if you go back to 1996, there are people that said about Muhammad Ali carrying the torch, oh, this is bullshit, not deserved, this, that, and the other, blah, 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 blah. I don't like his politics, I don't like this, I don't like that. But less than a year before I fell in love with the autobiography of Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali carried the torch at the Atlanta Olympics. And I remember watching that moment and being confused about the Parkinson's and being confused about his name, Muhammad Ali. It was a unique name to me at the time. And my parents told me about Malcolm X. Well, maybe not Malcolm X, but certainly the Nation of Islam and how he became Muhammad Ali and had been Cassius Clay. Vietnam War. Muhammad Ali's representation at the 1996 Olympics was a part of exposing me to an experience that I did not know. I think that One Night in Miami is a great film. It's a good movie. We're going to watch at the end of the show a, a, a clip. But it's a good movie. And it's also a great way to experience that story. I think everybody should watch One Night in Miami, unless you happen to already be an expert in, say, The Life of Jim Brown. Then you can give yourself a pass. After you watch One Night in Miami, watch Malcolm X by Spike Lee. Again, because you're probably not going to read the entire autobiography of Malcolm X. So experience the story that way. And it's a great movie. We'll be back next week. Also, we'll be back in two weeks for the Super Bowl. Big Super Bowl show. We got some great stuff for you this week on uh, the streaming top 10. I'll run them down one last time. I'm also going to throw them up on Instagram. But this week's Netflix top 10, presented by Hulu, live on Amazon's Twitch. At number 10, Hang 'em High. Number 9, McGruber. Number 8, Eyes Wide Shut. Number 7, Chappaquiddick. Number 6, Place in the Sun. Number 5, The Spy Who Shagged Me. Number 4, Master and Commander. Number three, Bonnie and Clyde, Dallas Classic. Number two, The Handmaiden, maybe one of the best movies that's been made in the last 20 years. And at number one, Good Burger, starring the absolutely lovable Keenan and Kel. I'm a dude, he's a dude, we're all dudes, hey. Uh, thank you guys for joining me on Sunday Night Cable. You can buy Body Double. Uh, I don't know who Red Exec is. Sorry, man. I didn't mean to uh, to miss your chats. Uh, GG's Red Exec. Um, I appreciate it. Um, yeah. Thank you guys for uh, for joining me. I'm going to uh, chill here. Feel free to ask questions. Uh, Red Exec, good to have you here. And, uh, yeah, we'll watch this trailer for... Uh, or the, this uh, final scene for One Night in Miami, and enjoy Sam Cooke's The Change is Gonna Come. I know when I'm being watched, Sam. Boy, your paranoia is really cramping my style. Wrong one. This one. Will no longer be known as Cassius Clay. He will be known as Muhammad Ali. It's been too Up there, on the sky, 
No modern resonance to this uh, NFL experience. this movie it's pretty successful you know there's definitely a lot of important changes since this moment i think the movie's definitely begging for more changes in the future but it's a good film and again i think it's it should be judged on you know its goals what's it supposed to be about there you go one night in miami well hey listen it's been fun hanging with you guys tonight on sunday night cable we'll be back next week Live at 8 Eastern, 5 Pacific. Later this week, I'm going to get on stream. I'm going to talk about the book Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. I'm going to give a little breakdown. I've read it a number of times. Sometimes it's a book that's intimidating to people. So I'm going to do a short breakdown on how I would approach it if I were reading it for the first time. And uh, maybe help people get their bearings a little bit to, uh, to help them get through the first couple hundred pages. Anyway, that's going to be later this week. We'll be talking Infinite Jest. Thanks for joining me tonight on Sunday Night Cable, and uh, I'll see you guys next week. Have a good one.